Hello and welcome to Unheard. I'm Freddie Sayers. Unless you have been living under a rock for the past three weeks, or of course if you've been only reading the New York Times or the BBC, you will know about something called the Twitter Files. This is a gradual release of information from the newly Elon Musk-owned Twitter about exchanges at the very highest levels inside the company towards government agencies about what should happen on censorship questions, who should be suppressed, whose information was misinformation, who was too dangerous. And one name that has found itself in the center of this storm is Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. He was mentioned by Barry Weiss, who was one of the journalists who had access to the so-called Twitter files, as someone who was in some way suppressed. The Twitter authorities had pressed a button that meant that his messages, unlike everyone else during the pandemic, couldn't go viral, wouldn't get the same kind of attention. And as a result of that, Elon Musk himself was in touch with Dr. Bhattacharya and invited him into Twitter HQ to see what was really going on and see what evidence there was about what had happened to him. Well, he hasn't spoken to anyone else, but he is an old friend of the channel and I'm delighted to say he joins us live from San Francisco where he has just re-emerged after his nationwide tour of the past few days and uh, he's going to let us know how it's all been. Hi Jay. Hi Freddie, thank you for having me. So you've really been in the eye of the storm this past few days. It sounds like quite an intense week. It has been incredibly stressful actually, a lot of a lot of media attention. I, I do have to say that the revelations of this the shadow banning, what they call it a trend blacklist, it is, uh, I mean, it's been, it's actually a healthy thing. A lot of people suspected this was happening, and it's it, to have it there in black and white in, in Barry Weiss's reporting was a was in a, in a sense a great gift. I wish that the blacklist had never happened. In fact, the whole term blacklist reminds me of you know some 1950s era bad novel with uh, you know uh, where where you're, you're you're some Hollywood communist or something. Uh, it's it, but uh, but but I think um, it's good and healthy that we now know this happened. So I really want to come on to. Um, what Mr. Musk was sort of asking you to do and what you found out at Twitter. But first of all, just so that everyone watching understands, what is it that we found out? So you were on so-called trends, what did they call it? Trends watch, trends list? Trends blacklist. blacklist. Trends blacklist. And that means that messages you were put out on Twitter, and let's remind everyone that you only joined Twitter in August 2021. So it's not exactly in the most frightening early moments of the pandemic even. This is pretty late on. They had adjusted your settings so that your messages couldn't really reach as many people. Yeah, so what I understand about it is that, um, so it, my messages, my Twitter messages, uh, can reach my followers, people who directly follow me. Um, but if they can't, they have no chance of being put on a, 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 a sort of a broader visibility setting so that people who don't follow me would see my messages. Uh, it, it, so it's, it's it's one of these things where like, okay, I'm talking to my group and I think everything's fine, but my messages have an upper limit on how far far and wide they go. Um, so you didn't uh, receive any notifications about this at the time? Any messages from Twitter saying you've been put on this list? No, I received no messages at all. Uh, I mean, I you know everyone everyone always suspects that their messages are are being suppressed or something, but uh, but you never you know it's, it's, it just feels paranoid to say it out loud. Um, to see it actually confirmed is quite something. Um, uh, the uh, uh, the way that uh, this happened is that, so I joined Twitter in August, 2021. 
the, my, one of my very first posts was the Great Barrington Declaration. Like it's just the link to the to the, the Great Barrington Declaration. You know that that the uh, the uh, petition where we uh, with, Mar with Senator Gupta of uh, Oxford and Martin Kulldorff of Harvard, where we argued for focus protection of vulnerable people and lifting lockdowns, opening schools. It was the kind of first big non-lockdown proposal, an alternative way. Exactly. This was in October of 2020. So August of 2021, many people heard of it, but not, not everybody heard of it. And I, I went on Twitter in part to promote those ideas broadly to, to a broader audience. Um, within that day when I joined Twitter, apparently Twitter received a number of unspecified complaints about me. Uh, it, it, it's not clear from my time in Twitter headquarters exactly who. Their systems are, are not set up to, be, to answer that question very easily although apparently people are looking into that. Um, and that that then put they, that then induced Twitter to put me on this trends blacklist to make sure that my my uh, tweets didn't go as broad, you know, didn't didn't reach a, a broad audience outside of my own network. So these are complaints that were upheld, do we think, by some sort of internal process? Or is it just the fact that they got complaints meant that you were blacklisted? It's not automatic, as far as I understand. Uh, it it that it did take some somebody at Twitter, some human at Twitter, had to think think about it. Um, th there's also, I think, uh, from my time at Twitter headquarters and talking with Twitter engineers, there are these AI systems, these machine learning systems, where th they're fed your know, terms, and those terms then automatically suppress particular tweets. Uh, that's not the same thing as a trend blacklist. That, that that may have happened to me. I, I don't know. I didn't get any confirmation one way or the other on that. So this the trends blacklist then is is like a long term setting. That's like Dr. J. Bhattacharya is in some way dangerous, and therefore, without telling him he's been censored, without taking down his posts, we're just going to kind of squish his message so that it doesn't get very far. Exactly. Um, and and I, it, if you look back in the history of the trends blacklist, it, it, I, it started the day I joined Twitter. And then it gets in 2021 and 2022, it gets routinely re-upped. Uh, maybe it has some some setting where it, where it ends. It's, again, it was unclear from talking with the Twitter engineers in the day that I was there. Um, exactly, because there, there's a lot of the Twitter engineers are, are new Twitter engineers that came over from Tesla to help Elon, it turns out. Uh, so they're still trying to figure out the systems. Um, but yeah, it, it got re-upped repeatedly through 2022 as well. And uh, re-upped is in renewed or is in like strengthened in some way. I think renewed. I, I, I don't. I don't think it got strengthened. It just means that my tweets will not go on the trending list, which would then make me visible to a very large audience. So there was some kind of check. Like, is is has Dr. Bhattacharya now become sane and sensible, and we are going to allow him to? spread his message, or is he still dangerous? Oh, no, he's still dangerous. Let's put him back on the list. I, it is just remarkable to see, Freddie. I mean, just over and over again. Uh, it, it's funny. It's like I, I would never have seen this but for the fact that that Elon Musk bought Twitter. And so I was, I was driving up to San Francisco for this um, to see, to, to meet with the Twitter engineers and with actually with Elon himself. Um, I, I just had in the back of my mind, this this trip cost somebody $44 billion, so I can take it. Yeah, it's an expensive, <laughs> um, expensive journey. I'm going to ask you in a moment about that that visit, but just very briefly, at the time, you said you had suspicions. What was that about? You felt because your your Twitter following grew substantially, and and you you were being heard by a, a large number of people, but you felt that something was going on. You could sort of sense that it, it was being restrictive. 
Well, I mean, I, I, I've been pretty visible on the anti-lockdown side. And, you know, I just, it's not to, not to brag, but it's just a fact uh, on, uh, outside of Twitter. Um, and I, I, I mean, I, and my, you're right, my, my following grew. I think that was just organic. I didn't pay for followers. I didn't, I mean, I just, it just, it grew because of, I think largely because of my notoriety outside of Twitter. Uh, and so the people on Twitter who, who were on there that knew about me followed me. Um, and, and so that, that, that in some sense is not surprising. If I, if I wasn't known outside, I probably wouldn't have gotten any, any mentions. So in other words, you, you, your account grew despite the backlist, despite yeah. Twitter's best efforts. The, the the suspicions had to do with why wasn't it why was why wasn't I reaching more different people, people from different backgrounds, di different different parts of Twitter. I mean, I think the message, for instance, about schools is a very broad message: opening schools, the importance of of, of keeping schools open, the harm to children. Um, that's a message I think should be very broadly heard. And it was, I mean, it's not that that I think on the the anti-lockdown sentiment has grown pretty sharply over the last year. Much of the movement has been, if you look at the growth of Twitter followings, a lot of the, 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 the people who are very vocally in favor of lockdowns, their Twitter accounts have started to, their, their growth slowed down, but they're, you know, like the most prominent Twitter pro-lockdown voices have, you know, more than a half million followers. They, they've 700,000 or more followers. And, and but their, their, their tweets get you know, just a, like, if they got a lot of engagement in 2020, much less engagement now. So you find out about this from the Barry Weiss release, and then what happens? Is Elon Musk in touch directly with you by email? Does he call you up? What happens next? Uh, so I get a Skype message from a common friend, someone who knows Elon and knows me. And it said, he writes, says, Jay, I have a, a early Christmas present for you. <laughs> And then, then, it, and then um, I'm on a signal group. He puts me on a signal group with Elon, and the, the first tweet, the first, first message from Elon says, "Is hi," uh, and and then I, uh, so he says, "Can you come this weekend to uh, Twitter headquarters so that you we can show you your files? We can show you, you know, what's what's uh, what what exactly Twitter 1.0 did." And what happens next? So I, I arrive at Twitter headquarters. I, I wait downstairs. I text on the signal group to Elon, and he sends somebody downstairs to get me. Um, just and then, let me just paint the scene for people. Where is Twitter headquarters? Is it a very large building? Where is it? It's it's a it's a building in San Francisco. Okay. Not particularly large. Um, and it's you know the the whatever third fourth floor. I forget exactly. You walk into Twitter headquarters. It looks like a five-star hotel that's been abandoned. There's almost, there's like a very fancy restaurant-looking thing. There's all kinds of like, you know, just, the decorations or the artwork, it all looks like a five-star hotel. Um, but nobody's there. Almost nobody's there. Except in, when you go into so there. So the restaurant like, is empty? Everything's empty. But except that when you go into the, the engineering area with all of the cubicles, it's filled with lots and lots of people trying very hard to make sure Twitter doesn't explode or something. It's Saturday during the day, and they're working hard. Um, I meet with Elon briefly. He he sends me to an engineer. Uh, he, he introduces me to an engineer who who is he I guess assigned to help me. Um, and so I learned a few things. We've got to. Uh, I mean, I would be a terrible journalist if I didn't ask you about your uh, chat with Elon. I mean, I'm sure he wouldn't mind. He I'm sure he's a fan of Unheard. What what is it that uh... What was his message to you? 
so was, so actually this is after I talked with a journalist. I, I spoke with him for almost an hour. Uh, I mean, it was very generous of him to, to give me so much time. Um, the, uh, the, the topic, of course, was on censorship. Uh, I, th I, I think he, uh, my sense is that he uh, bought Twitter in part because he is deeply offended by the idea that something like Twitter, which is so important for public communication, public square, communication within the public square, had put their thumb on the scale. Uh, that uh, it, not, it wasn't specifically about COVID. I think just generally, his sense was that uh, one side of the conversation wasn't being heard on many, many issues. And so his, his purchase of Twitter, I, I, you know, I think um, the purchase of Twitter, and then that, then the revelations that he's, his, that, you know, letting journalists in and, and opening up these files puts Twitter at some legal jeopardy. There may be people who sue Twitter, and of course now Elon is in charge, even though he didn't make these decisions. Twitter faces legal jeopardy, and I asked him, "Are you? Is it okay if I report about what I find, what I found here?" And he said, "Absolutely, yes. That was the purpose of the visit." So why is he so relaxed about potential legal cases coming to Twitter? I, I actually haven't fully understood that, given that he now owns it. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I mean, I, I think this is. He just views this as he's in a very privileged position that allows him to restore free speech. Um, allow for uh, restore free discussion of ideas, um, and he wants to use what what Gipsy's had for that purpose. I mean, I even made a joke. I could have bought an island with the forty four billion, but yeah, I bet. But this was this was a much better use of the money. Do we know if he was a um, kind of lockdown skeptic back in the day? Do we know was he familiar with your work and your message? What was his experience over the pandemic? I mean, I think he generally was a lockdown skeptic. Like he moved the Tesla plant in California. He very famously early in the pandemic, uh, you know, protested against it being locked down when the when the shutdown orders came, and then moved Tesla's headquarters, I guess, to to Texas. It, it sounds like maybe in protest, he didn't say specifically, but in order to essentially stay safe from from lockdown orders. Um, and he was it was very clear he was. Um, uh, aware of the harm of lockdowns. Um, he, he mentioned actually even about the early days of the pandemic, um, he had, uh, you know, he has a, a number of plants in, in China with tens of thousands of employees. He said, look, if I, if somebody dies in my, amongst my employees, I find out immediately because we don't, we stop paying them. Um, but he noticed that there was very, very few deaths on that metric early on. So he, so his view was that, uh, that it, w it wasn't clear that the that the that the you know the case fatality rate numbers that were coming out matched reality in China itself, even from the early stage of the pandemic, is what he told me. And was he was he aware of you? Was he aware of the Great Barrington Declaration? Uh, so I mean, I, I mentioned it. I was I don't know if he was aware directly of the Great Barrington Declaration. Actually, it wasn't. It, maybe he was. Maybe he wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't clear. Um, but it was clear that he uh, was sympathetic to my message. Certainly at this point, he was very sympathetic to my message. Um, that the that the harms to to the to the poor of the world because of the the economic dislocation caused by lockdowns, the closing of schools, all of that, I, I think he opposed. So you you have your chat with him, and then what happens? You're you're given a tour of the HQ, or you sit down with engineers to actually see what's happened to your case. That's what the the, the latter. So the, an engineer comes to me. I, we talk uh, in this little little cubicle. Um, and so it turns out that there are there's there's two major sources of information that the journalists that are looking at this are, are looking at. First, there's this tool which Barry Weiss made famous that for each person 
they'll have the status of the person and, and a history of the status of that person if you know how to look, although it's complicated. Um, those are those are uh, th th those include some personal identifiable information, which is why it's you know you're not seeing a, a dump of those files for everybody because they're not supposed to share with that 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 dump of that of, like of information for because there's a lot of personal information there. Um, so what's happening is is reporting of that of the information that comes out of that. Uh, so I I um, I'd gotten permission to look at myself, of course, and I asked for permission to look at Martin Kuldorf, who'd given me permission to ask about. Um, and what came out of that, the tool, um, is that is the history of that trends blacklist, as well as sort of the the uh, as well as well as other uh, other interesting things. So, for instance, there's a thing on Twitter. Was Martin also on the trends blacklist? He had been actually. Uh, his first placement on the trends blacklist was in July of 2020, when he was advocating for opening schools. This is a long time before the Great Barrington Declaration. Then he wasn't even that. Sort of controversial yet. Mm -mm. He was what he what he told me in July of 2020 was that what he was doing on Twitter was that whenever someone was mentioning that schools should close, he would post a link to the, the Swedish study that showed that when schools had opened in spring of 2020, uh, it was fine. No children, yeah, it was, it was fine. But no children had died. That 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 very few uh, very few uh, teachers had gotten sick relative to other workers in the population. Um, so, so, and he posted over and over and over. He said this. He was mo he's more active on Twitter than at any other time. That's exactly when the trends blacklist was applied on him, July 2020, and then again three more times in 2022. Although his there was no active trends blacklist for Martin at the moment. But it's still active for you, or it's now been removed. Uh, it was still active when I was at Twitter. I, I I hope it's been removed. The engineers who were talking to you and helping you through this, I guess they're part of the kind of rump of Twitter employees who are now loyal to Elon. I mean, is that what we're talking about? There's a sort of minority of people still there who support his message, or were they just neutral? You know, I've been told to do this, I'll show you. What, did you, what was your sense of the other employees at Twitter? I mean, the, the employees that are left are obviously very dedicated to making sure Twitter runs. Um, the, the particular uh, Twitter engineer that I worked with, he was moved over from Tesla. He, uh, he, in fact, a number of the, the, the deputies I've met of Elon were moved over from Tesla um, to help fight fires at Twitter. I, there are a lot of technical fires that I don't really understand myself. So, but, uh, but, and, and, you know, what they told me is that uh, the Twitter, uh, that Elon is there till three o'clock at night. I mean, he was going to be there till three o'clock at night on Saturday, for, you know, till early Sunday morning. Uh, I saw him meeting with. I saw him on the outside of a conference room meeting with a, a, a gaggle of engineers. I mean, it, with with they're discussing some some technical issue. I think. Um, so I mean, I, I think that 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 uh, the people that are there are very dedicated to making sure that the that the site works and and runs, um, with with a with a different philosophical basis, one of of op openness of to, to free speech and rather than suppression of ideas. Did you get any information when you were there on who? imposed the trends blacklist what we you mentioned earlier it was a human being which human being there's the tool i mentioned but then there's two other sources of information it turns out there's a something called a slack channel a slack channel is in is, is basically you know i'm sure your listeners know about this but we, we you it's like a place where employees can send messages to each other with on different topics um there's a public slack channel public meaning everyone inside twitter can see and then there's a private Slack channel, which is that only people with certain permissions can see. I was given access to the public Slack channel to search for my name. 
and to answer that question. I did not find an answer to that question. Who requested it? What was clear was that, that, that there was somebody who requested it from the, the search tool. The search tool had a note that said, essentially, that someone requested some, some, that someone was inside Twitter. That actually even that wasn't clear. It might have been someone outside. Okay, so that's so that's one tool. So you didn't you didn't sort of find any particular smoking gun from from that search. But you mentioned there was another source. Yeah. So there's the pub, there's the private uh, Slack channel which I did not have access to. So I don't I don't have a smoking gun about who requested it. I, I will say that there's a there's a parallel effort that I've been involved with. Uh, the Missouri and uh, Louisiana Attorney General's offices along with this uh, legal group called the NCLA, National, uh, New Civil Liberties Alliance, is suing the federal government, the United States federal government, for uh, using its power to, uh, to uh, essentially cooperating with social media companies or directing social media companies to, to censor voices, including mine. Um, in that lawsuit, we have deposed... Tony Fauci, we've we have de we've deposed. Uh, we're going to have a deposition with Jen Psaki, the former uh, communications director of the White House, a whole bunch of other federal employees, um, and we've we have had uh, or we've basically we 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 have uh, uh, discovery from a whole bunch of federal agencies. It turns out a dozen federal agencies were sending, were cooperating closely with Twitter and other social media companies, telling them what to censor, in some cases who to censor. We we have that. That's a fact. That's well known. What we don't what we don't have we don't have yet is a direct message saying I was I was censored, but the the kinds of messages that I was talking about, you know, the Great Branton Declaration, for instance, that that was suppressed. The, the federal government actively worked to suppress those kinds of messages uh, during the pandemic. And we should probably say that although we now know a little bit more about Twitter than we did, it's pretty certain that the other social media companies were just as bad. Twitter's the one we now have visibility into, but we've had issues with YouTube, we've had issues with Facebook, and the same kinds of principles were in all likelihood going on there. And just to kind of retrace that moment, what it requires is that here you are, a highly qualified, softly spoken professor in the med medical school at Stanford, expressing reservations about a radical new public health policy that has never been tried before in history. Just months after it started, and in the case of Martin Kildorf, really very soon after it started, and someone inside a social media company is saying, this must not be said. And, and it's being literally, there's a button is being pressed that censors you. Yeah, it's exactly what happened. And, and you're absolutely right, Freddie, that this is broader than Twitter. Um, I mean, just to give you one concrete example I know about that happened to me, uh, in March of 2021, uh, I was in a roundtable with the, go the governor of Florida, Governor DeSantis, a public roundtable, video, videotape broadcast actually um, on TV, um, where I was asked about the efficacy of child and toddler masking on slowing spread of the disease. I'd actually prepared for this by looking at the literature. It turns out there are no randomized studies that suggested that that, that works. I said that um, because of what I said, YouTube censored the video of, the, of a sitting governor of a state talking to scientific advisors on important scientific policy questions. Um, it's, it's remarkable. The public was denied a opportunity to hear all sides of the of the scientific debate that was going on during the pandemic. The public, because of these actions, the public was misinformed. 
And is it your sense right now, having had the information that you now have, that it's more a case of a, a sort of collective moral panic or quick judgment that meant that everyone was trying to be on the so-called right side of history and rushing to censor things? Or do you think it really was a case of government instructions and an otherwise neutral company like Twitter pretty much being forced to obey them? I think it's a little bit of both. It's hard to say exactly. I mean, it's hard to have some direct, a direct answer to that question. So I, I think there certainly has, was government instruction. Uh, and I think that partly that government instruction created the panic uh, that, that then led Twitter and other social media companies to say, well, we want to be, we want to cooperate with the government uh, on something that we otherwise would say, no, go take a hike, because we don't, we don't want to be the cause of, of a large number of people dying. The irony is that if they had allowed the open debate to happen, a large number of people wouldn't have dead, wouldn't have died. A large, large number of people uh, who died as a consequence of the lockdowns, the economic dislocation, so on. It very likely, I think we had the better of the argument in terms of the scientific argument at the time. And if a free and fair debate had been permitted to happen, uh, the, 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 the result would have been very different. I mean, if, if you think about it, what, what they're doing is not just simply suppressing an idea. I mean, that's bad enough that the, that the public doesn't know. Um, but, but the main thing that they do is, they do is it's, it's a sort of social credit system, a de facto social credit system. You know, I'm, I'm censored by YouTube for, ta for talking with the sitting government of Florida. Well, that people then will look at me and say, well, he's the kind of guy that gets censored by, by YouTube. Um, or I, I, you know, it's, 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 it's a, um, it's a it's a it's a kind of black mark that's placed on you is like oh you you have a I never had this but like a misinformation label placed on a Twitter thing well now you're the kind of person even though you're a Stanford professor doing your best to read the literature and, and describe what what you're seeing now you're the you're a you're a you're a bad guy who doesn't know how to read the literature or you know is sharing misinformation simply because somebody in the government or some social media uh, intern disagrees with you well we we had similar things that unheard you know extremely interesting interviews were suppressed and taken down on multiple social media channels. And, you know, had we spoken before, I would have said, you've got to look up Unheard and look up me and let's see what they say on Twitter about us. I wouldn't be surprised if we've made some kind of transgression as well. So Elon, if you are watching, look up, look up Unheard, look up us and uh, let us know how we got on. What you just said, though, Dr. Bhattacharya, is really important and really quite frightening, which is that this isn't just a matter of process or social media or even free speech. What we might be looking at is deaths, people suffering and dying more perhaps than they needed to because of information being suppressed. Because if you're right, that had your message been allowed to get out more, the conversation might have changed people at senior levels of government might have changed their minds earlier and put an end to what we now know were highly destructive policies, yeah, lives could have been saved. So, so it suddenly gives it a different flavor, doesn't it? That it's not really an abstract question of free speech. It's potentially really very, very serious. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I just the, 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 this is this sounds too pithy. And it's, it's probably dangerous to say it this way, but like just because I'll get, I'll get uh, attacked for it. But I, I do really believe censorship kills and censorship killed during this pandemic. Uh, the policies would have been so much better. You know, I don't know necessarily that every aspect of the Great Barrington Declaration would, would have been adopted, although I do think that we were right on many aspects of, of the policy. Um, but I do think 
that the policies that, that were adopted were incredibly damaging to the lives and livelihoods of so many people. 100 million people thrown into poverty worldwide. That's the estimate from, from the World Bank. Um, I mean, you know, you know just, just the consequences of that itself are going to have tremendous effects on the lives and livelihoods of people going, of, of poor people going forward. And of course, all these children that were, that were, that were robbed of an education for years. Um, I, I mean, th those are, those are, those are absolutely monumental outcomes of the policies we adopted during the pandemic. Those should have been freely discussed. And I think that because this, what the way my view of the scientific evidence, it was so clear, even at the time that we should not have been closing schools. Uh, and, and if we had been allowed to have a free and fair discussion, I think the schools would not have closed. If there hadn't been this sort of demerit system for people who spoke up against uh, against these kinds of policies automatically, where somehow we're, we're lesser, um, that, that we, we might have had, you know, more, more uh, mainstream attention to it. You know, you, you, you uh, uh, think about how the, the debate actually wore out. Like you had uh, Francis Collins, the head of the National Institute of Health, calling me a, and, and, and Martin Kulldorff and Sunetra Gupta, he, he called the three of us fringe epidemiologists. Uh, in an email, and then, then asked for a devastating takedown of the premises of the Great Barrington Declaration. That led to hit piece after hit piece against me in mainstream media. Um, it, it basically, you know, in the minds of many people who just were not paying close attention, I'm, I'm a pariah. Whatever ideas I have must be wrong. But in the case of Twitter, which is where we, we started, they made it a lot worse. And so paradoxically, Mr. Musk, who's kindly invited you into his uh, <laughs> HQ to view the evidence, you're now making a very convincing case that Twitter is potentially liable by making these kind of unnecessary censorships of medical professionals such as you for very, very grave outcomes for very many people. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know the uh, the legalities of it, but I will say this: that if if they were doing it at the behest of the government, that should qualify as some sort of defense. I mean, it's it's very difficult, I think, for social media companies when the governments come and say, look, if you allow this speech to happen, it's going to be very dangerous for the public, people will die, you should, you should suppress it. A lot of social media companies will react to that, I think, un uh, understandably, by uh, complying. Is it their fault? I mean, I think it's primarily the fault of the government, like the government regulates them. They can just absolutely do, do all kinds of damage to the, the financial well-being of the company. If they don't comply, the, 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 they face a lot of threat. Um, so it's, it, 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 may, it may have happened under duress. Um, and so I, may, I don't know if that's a legal defense, but to me it's a moral defense anyways. Um, so I think, uh, it, I think the key player here is the governments. Governments use... And that's your I, legal case at the moment is against the government. Yeah, that's the legal cases against the federal, the U.S. federal government. I think, by the way, this happened in the U.K. as well. There's no no doubt in my mind this happened in the U.K. that that that, that those kinds of powers were used to to uh, suppress suppress uh, uh, dissent uh, against these policies. So I, I, it's a it's a sad moment in our democracies in our, in, in in the West. Uh, the the kinds of strains that we have in the West, which is this, this sort of almost immune system that allows. Uh, allows you know somebody in the middle of nowhere to say, no, gosh, that's a terrible idea. Go go take a hike, and then give you a, and then convince the public that that what the government's doing is wrong. That was that was undermined during the pandemic. Jay, I'm going to end by asking two questions, which might appear to be on the other side of this. Um, you know, we we don't want to be accused here of just being kind of 
Elon Musk fanboys who are just, uh, you know, sending out the, the right message. The first is, do you share my concern that there's a danger of Elon Musk going too far too soon? And some of his recent messages, he said, my pronouns are prosecute Fauci, did have a slightly sort of Trumpian ring to them. And, you know, you can make the case, I think, fairly, that if you are the sole proprietor of the global public media conversation, for you to call for a prosecution of an individual is a kind of maybe a reckless thing to do and is going to undermine that new spirit of free speech. Do you share that concern? I, I do. I, I mean, I, I, he obviously has an outsized uh, platform and he's using it. But would you advise Elon to kind of tone it down a bit? on on Because he's tweeting a lot. He's saying things that sound quite partisan. They sound quite provocative. He's obviously enjoying the power that goes with this new position. I mean, and did you advise him in your hour-long conversation? You know, if you want to really play the long game with this, tone it down a bit. So I, I didn't. I didn't advise him about the tone of his tweets. I don't know if he listened about that. He seems like he's having a lot of fun about this. I don't. I, I agree with you. I don't know. If that, it's not what I would do were I in his position. But on the other hand, I didn't have forty-four billion dollars to spend to buy the company. Um, I, I think uh, it, like the ideal person for this may not exist. The person who's like completely even tempered and also so deeply committed to free speech that they're willing to, you know, essentially uh, put their entire fortune at risk. Um, that that may not exist. I mean, we have to deal with the people we have in front of us. And Elon is, I think, a, a, a big step up from the previous ownership, who weren't obviously all that committed to free speech. Um, I do. I, I agree with you, though, Freddie. It is. It's not. It's. It's not uh, the wisest use of his power. To, to, I, th I think it would have been wiser to be more more uh, temperate in his in in, in, in talking about. And I, I do. For instance, Tony Fauci. I, I think that he made tremendous mistakes during the pandemic. He abused his power during the pandemic, and it's 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 led to a lot of problems. But I think the the right uh, the right redress, the right sort of justice for him is for not not to prosecute him, but to, but for history to remember him as ha having made those mistakes. That that in fact, although he may have committed his life to uh, to healing, that in fact the the prescriptions he gave during the pandemic made the lives of so many people worse. Yeah, so in a way, it'd be more powerful for history to judge him and find that he made mistakes than go after a kind of personal prosecution of a of a of someone in his position. Um, final question for you, and then I promise to let you get on with your morning. And it concerns you yourself, and I suppose it's an adjacent question to Elon Musk. After your tour of Twitter, you went off to Florida and took part with Governor Ron DeSantis in a round table of, I suppose, people who were similarly dissident voices during the pandemic. And it was a kind of look back at what happened related to the Twitter files and the rest of it. Do you have any of the same concern about you that in order for you to still be an unimpeachable voice of science, you shouldn't be seen to get too close to a Republican governor who is running for president? You know, the funny thing is, if if it was a, a Democratic governor, I don't think anyone would ask me that question. I I, I don't. Uh, the problem, is, and and you know, the, it, this is a symptom. I, I I share your concern, though, in that sense. Like the the problem is that public health has become an obviously political thing during the pandemic. It should never have been that, but it has become that. Um, and so, uh, like so, for instance, the one of the initiatives that the governor announced was a uh, a public health integrity committee. Where we will look at 
uh, studies or recommendations that the CDC gives regarding the regarding COVID and other 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 matters, and give an independent voice. Right? It, it's analogous, I guess, to the what I think of as like Ice Age in the UK. I mean, which was, I mean, in in some sense associated with 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 the Labour Party. I mean, it's not 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 directly, but uh, and 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 was it healthy or not? It's just a reality. I, I wish that it had just been in internal to the CDC. They'd had a B team that invited people like me or others to say, look, this is not right, and then allowed there to be a dissenting voice even within the CDC, so that the recommendations hadn't been so univocal. And many of those recommendations turned out to be quite harmful. Um, so I, I don't know a better way. I wish there were, Freddie. I wish there were a way to just do this without with like criticize how public health is operating without being involved with politics. But I, 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 in a, and if you have if you have suggestions, I'm open to so it. So you you, I, you accept it reluctantly, basically that you, you you it's not perfect, but you'd rather have your voice heard and be part of a movement to put forward a different position, even if it gets a political. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I personally am not. I've never signed up for a political party for this reason. I don't. I, I, I have politics, obviously, but I don't hold them very strongly. I, I hope that's clear to you, folks who've been listening to me through the whole pandemic. Um, it's because the the you know like ninety nine percent of public health professionals in in the United States, I think about elsewhere, are on the left. Uh, and so if you're if you're taking a position where I'm not going to enter politics, I'm not going to talk about politics, um, you're automatically seen as on the right. Even if you're not necessarily, um, and so I think uh, it's it's I think really the, the the blame here is public health, which has allowed itself to become political. That you know in 2020, it was really clear that public health was taking the side against President Trump in the in the election. Not that I mean, it's not a completely reasonable position to take, but but the point is that public health really needs to speak to everybody, whether that people voted for President Trump or not. And it, uh, what's happened in, in the United States, anyway, is that is public health now looks down on people um, who weren't don't share their political views. It's a it's and as a result, public trust in public health, at least in half the public, has, has collapsed. You can't be effective in public health with that. With that, and I, I think the solution is a restoration of balance. And I think uh, w working with with Governor DeSantis, who's he's not telling me what to say. He's just giving me me a platform to say, here's what I think about. Um, this guidance that that's being provided, I think I think that's I think it's the best of it's not it's a, it's a second best solution. The, the the first best is not available to us. Dr. Jay Bajacharya, thank you as always for your time today. I think anyone listening should fairly conclude that you are not a voice that should be suppressed or trend limited or blacklisted or anything else, because whether people agree with your exact policy prescriptions or not, you are the height of reasonableness. So, thanks for that. Thank you, Freddie. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. That was Professor Jay Bhattacharya from the medical school at Stanford University. He has become perhaps the most famous figure on the anti-lockdown side of the argument over the past three years of pandemic. He was giving us something of a world exclusive there, the first ever interview since Elon Musk himself invited Professor Bhattacharya into Twitter HQ to view the evidence against him and find out more about how Twitter censored his account and prevented his public health information and ideas from reaching a wider public for a long time over a very significant period. He had an hour-long conversation with Mr. Musk and he told us all about it. Thank you to Jay, 
Thanks to you for tuning in, and as ever, this was Unheard.